The thing is that the real world doesn't work that way. The real world's not symmetrical with an equal number of starters and an equal number of finishers. The, the model that I use is called a Gompertz curve and a Gompertz curve works like um, viral and bacterial growth. Because of COVID, everyone is intimate now with viral spread, even if they don't mm -hmm. do the math, everyone has seen some of those charts where it's like, well, there's two cases. Now there's 12 cases. Now there's 50 cases. Now there's 500 cases. And that's day after day after day. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinion of Arcos Global Advisors or its advisors. The mention of different asset types or securities do not constitute a recommendation for our clients. If you have any questions about the content of this podcast, please contact your advisor. In this episode of Navigating Bitcoin's Noise, I'm joined by Timothy Peterson of Kane Island Research to discuss the power and importance of network effects in cryptocurrencies. As the economy has transitioned to a digitized world driven by math, Metcalf's Law has become a very important component of financial modeling and understanding its relationship to investor psychology. Tim has spent years understanding and researching Metcalf's work and how it applies to Bitcoin, markets, and money. If you're looking to better understand Bitcoin's past and its future potential as an economic network, then join us and listen in. Thanks, everybody, for joining. Today, I have with me Timothy Peterson of Kane Island Research. Uh, he's a long-standing professional in traditional markets, a CFA, an author, portfolio manager, a lot of experience across different assets, has expertise in the alts world. So, uh, Timothy, why don't you tell us a, just a brief bit about your background, and then, then we'll get going with the more interesting topics on Bitcoin network effects and the rest of the crypto ecosystem. Yeah, thanks, Kane, for having me. Uh, I, I was a failed aerospace engineer. Um, I went into to school to be an engineer, and I was going to be an astronaut and a pilot, and and decided that yeah, it wasn't as glamorous as I thought it was going to be, that doing the math for physics wasn't as fun as flying around an airplane. So I, um, I switched gears a couple of times in college and, and ended up, uh, you know, I'd always had a computer aptitude and I didn't know anything about finance. I mean, I grew up very poor. So I did a lot of self-study in finance. Uh, and, and part of that was my, my econ degree, which was what was going to get me out of school the quickest after changing majors four times. So, you know, I, I started a career in finance and, and I was going through several jobs. I've seen pretty much every aspect of financial services. I've been on the auditing side. I've been on the money management side. I've been on compliance. I've done marketing. And so when I went through my career, I spent, you know, almost 30 years in financial services and had accomplished a lot. I had written a book, I had been promoted to partner, I'd, um, stocked away a lot of money. And I said, well, what I really want to do with, with the rest of my life and decided that money management was, was truly my passion. And it always has been. So I started managing money for um, friends and family and along comes Bitcoin. Uh, let, let me tell you my, my Bitcoin discovery story. Cause I think everybody has one. Um, my Bitcoin discovery started in 2013 when Bitcoin hit $1,000 and I read about it in some magazine uh, or news article. And I was like, what is this, right? Uh, electronic money. So having a finance degree and also having multiple computer science programming classes and having worked as a software designer for a Fortune 500 company, 
I picked up on Bitcoin right away. Like immediately I'm like, this is it and this works, right? I knew it, I knew it had value, but what I couldn't decide is what is that value, right? Why is it a thousand dollars? What am I gonna get for my thousand dollar investment other than speculative increase? And, and I did invest because I couldn't answer that question. So Bitcoin crashed in um, 2013, 14. And I, I didn't invest in it. And I was like, wow, I was you know, really smart to stay away from that stupid thing. But uh, a few years later, I read that it was back, you know, and it was back over a thousand, it was approaching 2000. And having had experience in the markets for, for so long, I knew that usually things that die don't come back to life. And this really caught my attention that it was still around and growing, even having experienced uh, an 80% loss and even larger ones before that as well. So I started doing some research. I came across um, a letter from a, an investor that I knew personally. It was their shareholder letter and it described Metcalf's law. And then the light bulb went off. I said, this is the first viable um, thesis for the value of Bitcoin or any network that I've ever seen. And I've spent the past seven years, 10,000 hours researching network economics on my own time, probably six hours a day, almost every day, trying to understand Metcalf's law, network economics, and Bitcoin valuation. And uh, you know, I've made my research public. It's been stepwise. I've started out small with the very uh, first paper. I just wanted to say, well, is there a relationship? I wasn't trying to to be uh, you know, definitive with anything. I just want to say, is there a relationship? And then I, you know, I went from there and uh, I have my final paper um, formulated in my head. I just did the math, um, you know, being a former engineer, I've got a lot of math in my head. So uh, I'm looking forward to publishing that or you know, this year or next. And, and it's, it's really groundbreaking. I mean, this is the definitive valuation paper um, which should get published in a high quality journal and, and make some press. That's awesome. Um, especially the journal part. Can't wait for that to come out. Um, because I've in, in preparation for this, um, podcast, I, I read through a few of your papers and they're phenomenal. They make a ton of sense. Um, what you just explained as your background is very similar to mine personally, just probably maybe a decade, maybe five, 10 years behind you, kind of going through that computer science side of things, you build that, you know, thinking in terms of algorithms, which more and more, that's the way the world works. That's the way software, software works. That's where our scheduling works. And so it just makes that easier. And when I saw Bitcoin, I passed on it the first time because I said, well, you know, this thing's not going to overtake Wall Street. Those guys say it's stupid. So it's got to be stupid. And I was just young and naive in that regard. Um, but then same thing when it, didn't die and came back, I, I kind of got pulled back in. So um, I've kind of set off on this journey from from my side, like traditional side. And now you've uh, kind of merged over and doing a lot of crypto research and Bitcoin research and network research to do the same. But from the perspective of, well, we have these clients that maybe they don't understand Bitcoin and crypto. And then we have the Bitcoiners and the crypto ecosystem that don't understand kind of traditional markets and how money moves around. So that was kind of the goal of doing these uh, podcasts and having people on like yourself. So I think to start one really interesting thing to me is uh, in your paper, Bitcoin like a virus, you talk about the amount of noise in Bitcoin and in the community and on Twitter and, and that 
the community kind of views the the level of noise and the amount of noise as information, but when you dissect it, there's really not that much fundamental information in the noise. And what I've tend to notice over the last few years, specifically as the community's gotten bigger, is that there's these fundamental tidbits that do come out and nothing happens to the price. But then somebody pushes out a cool meme that goes viral and the price goes nuts one way or the other. Do you maybe want to extrapolate a little bit further on your view uh, or thoughts on you know, noise versus information, uh, trading versus an investment process that, that relies more on fundamentals? Yeah. So anybody who wants to be um, a serious investor um, needs to needs to understand noise. And there are, are two resources I would point people to. Um, the first is an article, an essay written by Fisher Black of Black Scholes Option Pricing Model. Fisher Black wrote an article entitled Noise. And it's out on the internet. It's not a mathy read. And, and really, you can just read the first three or four pages of it and get an understanding of how noise is. It's, it's in all markets. It's in all information. Uh, and it's just to be aware of it and understand how much noise there is in the marketplace is a good one. The, the second thing is, um, and I don't agree with everything that's in this book, but Nate Silver has a book called The Signal and the Noise. And again, it's not a mathy read. There's some math in it, but he talks about um, why forecasts and predictions fail and, and the underlying causes because people rely on noise, which they think is valuable information, but in fact, it's not. It's just stuff that's out there. And it, it's the art of investing is to be able to distinguish what's real and important and what's just fluff and, and fantasy. Uh, and it's, it's difficult because even if you figure those things out, not everybody else does. And so they act on wrong information and that can move against the fundamentals. And that's a whole other field called behavioral science. But, you know, throw away your, um, your charts, okay? Throw away your, your stock to flow model and start learning about noise and investor psychology. And you will greatly improve your understanding of markets. And that right there is the biggest probably shift. I don't know. I, I kind of came in um, CMT and, 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 technical analysis. I still use it all the time, but what probably in the 2008 to 2012 range, what I started to recognize was the psychology that's built into markets and trading and price behavior. Uh, when you're dealing with non-manipulated assets or non or assets that don't have you know, exterior pressures pushing them one way or the other. And it, it also behavioral economics became you know, a more discussed and talked about thing. And I think one more book, I haven't read it, but I think uh, Robert Schiller in the last few years um, wrote a book on the power of, you know, basically social networks and how that's impacting stocks or, or the psychology side of things. Uh, he usually does really good research. So that's another resource. And I forgot the exact title, but general range, but that's been very useful and probably the biggest change for me uh, looking at the Bitcoin network and looking at the crypto ecosystem is because there wasn't that, you know, high level of distortion in prices, you got to witness and see in price the natural human psychology that comes from those, you know, social factors. Uh, so I thought that was some of your work was was um, on point in, in that regard. Uh, the other thing that... Um, Kind of goes on in this space is just the constant bickering over well this coin's money or that coin's money or or 
that's an altcoin, so it can't be money. And and to me, when you look at it, it, it it's very similar to like with traditional markets. We have the S and P, which now arguably is very tech driven, but that was your kind of traditional companies or the Dow, the blue chip kind of old school. And then you had the NASDAQ, which was technology. And so it's kind of similar in crypto where you have Bitcoin that's more money and Ethereum and all these others that are more technology around money. So you talked a little bit about it uh, in your works about the value of money and if there's really any value in money because it's just a medium of exchange and there's no inherent value of that. It's what comes on either side. I share a lot of that view or feel like I share with the way that you wrote it. So maybe you could talk a little bit about how you view money in these economic systems, what the important role historically that sound money or a money has played and, and how that maybe translates over to this new paradigm, this digital paradigm. Yeah. You mentioned something that I want to want to go back on and, and talk about. And that was the S and P has become more tech like, and I've tracked this really recently, like within the past, I think pre COVID, I started looking at this and you take out um, the, the fam G stocks, Facebook, Amazon, Apple, Microsoft, and Google. Okay. Not Netflix that fangs Netflix is a one way network, but the other ones are, are two way networks. And those five now dominate the performance of the S and P 500. Um, not just in market cap, but just the, the price movement. Correlate. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's some, and it's very high, right? It's like they're, they're determinant of the, the market. And if you look at those five things, they're all networks. They're all mm-hmm. two-way, multi-way networks. And networks get bigger over time, and they just gobble up everything. That's the way networks work. And there's some bad things to that. I do want to point that out, is, is that this network effect is pervasive in economies, and it's only going to get bigger, and it's only going to get worse, in a sense. Now, great value can be created up to a point, right? And we're looking at Facebook going, I think it's reached that point, right? They're losing mm-hmm. people, they're hating it, right? Congress is talking about breaking up Facebook and Google, right? And people are saying, this big is bad, in, mm-hmm. in general. We like the, the access, right? We like to be able to communicate with the world, but everything has a cost, and the social costs of, of these large networks is is not good. So back to, to money and what makes something money. And I'm not sure why there is. So there's there's a lot of debate. Uh, and most of this comes on Twitter. And it's it's this tribalistic attitude of I'm going to cheerlead my my investment, right? Read to talk your talk your holding just like has gone on in the hedge fund business forever. You get your position and then talk it up. Yeah, because people want want credit for being smart investors. And and if you look back over the years, I, I think that it's been a good investment. I think many people are lucky. Um, yeah. But but I don't, I'm not sure that it's it's a you know it's good. So there, you you mentioned that there's uh, Bitcoin is money, and then there's um, money tech. You, you know what we're seeing this what cryptocurrency has let people do is monetize their private equity immediately. You right. don't go through the traditional fundraise where that value is hidden from the public, where you do a startup like Zuckerberg did with his friends, and then it grows because they've you know got it on Harvard campus and it goes to some other campuses. And then they go get A-series financing, which is a private deal, and maybe it makes the press and maybe it doesn't. And and you don't really see the value until it IPOs, and that's that's years later. 
cryptocurrency, you see that value on day one and value moves. Unfortunately, with most of these um, coins, and most of them are venture capital, private equity, they're not really cryptocurrencies. Mm-hmm. It's public financed venture capital, and that'll get shut down by the government someday, um, or at least modified in the way that they can go about it. Uh, That's an important point. Sorry, just to one of the biggest changes that I think in a positive light, regardless of which coin you prefer, what has traditionally been a painful process with alternatives and real estate investing, private deals could easily be replaced with tokens and allow more people to participate uh, as opposed to the way that it's happened for 50 years in traditional markets. I don't want to sidetrack you, but that's a big point that I think in terms of fundamentals that are being overlooked for one reason or the other. Right, right. And, and Gensler at the SEC has said every ICO is a security, right? And he's probably got legal grounds to say that. Um, what's that mean? Well, it just means you need to file the paperwork, right? It doesn't right. mean that it's illegal to trade or anything like that. It is as it is at the moment, right? Because you're trading in an unregistered security, the exchanges are at risk. And one day, Mark my words, they're going to go after the exchanges. Now, maybe not with litigation, but but they're already trying to pressure all the exchanges. Right. And I think they're going to apply more of that pressure. They're going to try soft. And then if soft doesn't work, then they'll try hard. But yeah, so monetization. So most of these coins are are monetization of a project or it's it's B2B money. It's it's behind the scenes. It's a it's literally a token that's used to transfer value from place A to place B. You're not going to buy a pizza with it. It's, you're not going to fund your retirement with it. It's not going to be a global instrument, but it does serve a function and it's replacing what has pr- typically been on a private ledger, right? I, I love the example of, of roads um, and cars because you can have a toll road and you know, I pay tolls when I drive on the toll road and it, it reads my RF chip and it takes money out of my account. I mean, there's a, there's a ledger behind that. And it's a traditional private ledger with you know debits and credits, but that could easily be converted into cryptocurrency. It doesn't mm-hmm. have to be a cryptocurrency that you go buy, but if you did, if it was market based, then you have a market force coming into the value of a toll road trip, and you get a lot more efficiency and a lot more liquidity if you do that. It streamlines efficiency and breaks down the silos that today, with the way the database structure and network structure is set up with, you know, read, write access only if I've approved you as an owner permission to say you can, these crypto networks just bring that interoperability and integration across many different networks and databases that are disconnected or disjointed and siloed out of the system. Right. And, and you mentioned about, you know, what's the value of money and, and, you know, there's, there's what we call spacey, which is the physical dollar bills in the physical coins that's that's called specie um, those things don't have a value in and of themselves right your dollar bill is made out of cotton first of all it's not paper um, it's got special ink and it's got special countermeasures on it so that you it's not easy to counterfeit um, but what's the value of that piece of, of cotton it's it's negligible right it's it's a few cents probably but the value of money as a stand-in is incredibly important, right? It, it lets us avoid barter, right? I've got some bread. I need some shoes. Let's trade. Well, making that trade in quantities that make sense when you want it, it's really difficult. So mm-hmm. we as a society built marketplaces and built exchanges and invented money 
specifically because that was so incredibly important to be able to exchange on demand at the right value at the right time. And, and it's primarily we built it to transport value or transfer value from one to the other. We didn't build it to be value. I mean, there's a component where you need money to be a store of value over time. And that's, in my opinion, what's missing in the world today in terms of building that growing, budding economy. You, you need a sound base with not a lot of um, leverage and rehabilitation, but the ability to quickly connect and integrate and carry that value across networks as people need to make changes. Yeah, there's a really good video on YouTube called The History of Money in 10 Minutes. And, and everyone should watch that video. It's actually an 11 minute video, but not mine. But it, it describes why money you know, is what it is and why gold has value. And it even mentions Bitcoin at the end. And you know, it's the short story is money has to have five things, right? And these things came, you know, Aristotle was the guy who figured out what these four of the five were, right? It's gotta be portable, divisible, durable, scarce. And then the last one is accepted. And durability means it's not gonna turn to dust or break apart or anything like that. So past in, incarnations of money, uh, if it was made out of wood, wood rots, it can burn, it's not durable. Rocks, rocks turn into sand over time. They're not durable. They can break if you drop them. So can many other things. And gold is durable. Durable means it's just going to stay what it is forever, right? Land is durable. Gold is durable. Iron is not durable. It turns to rust. So that's why we don't have iron coins. Um, and anything that's durable can be a store of value. Okay. So the stock market today is still a store of value because the stocks in cyberspace Right? They're not physical pieces of paper. They're not going to break down and decay and, and be subject to the ravages of time. So real estate, gold, stocks, and Bitcoin, anything that's going to maintain its property can be a store of value. And stocks, for instance, have revenues, revenue streams, products, things that back up that certificate. So unless something changes in the fundamentals of the business, then you can say, well, hey, I can do some math and come to an idea of what the value of this thing is because of these revenue streams underneath it. If one falls off or they go away, that's also why those carry value. And, and the one point uh, that was crucial, that fifth point of Aristotle, to me, money, there, nothing backs money. It's just faith. Now, you have these systems where gold backed it and gold was that thing that carries value that you just talked about. But once you get to the, the paperization and the leverage side of money, it's just faith that I can take this thing, go in the marketplace, someone else will accept it. And then that will give me the ability to buy these goods and services that I need. And, and I think that builds into the network effects, which we can talk about that. If enough people have faith in this brand, it creates this network that has power and network effects, just like Facebook. You know, if there's only one user or two users, it's not really that useful, but there was five, six, or seven, and each of them could get three friends and it just grows in multiples. The value becomes everybody believes that they can use it and it will be accepted. And then because everybody believes they invite more people and that network just keeps growing where the inherent value is, we don't really know in the beginning, but it becomes a number of things, communication, delivery, you know, whatever comes on top of it. So maybe you can, you know, give your thought on that and then explain a little bit better your view of the power of, of network effects. 
Yeah, the, the faith that, that you're talking about is the faith that you can exchange it later at some other right. date for a, a value, right? Um, that faith has, has been in the U.S. dollar because even though the dollar was backed by gold, um, the price of oil was backed, um, was, was pegged to the dollar. And every country in the world, we're going back to 45 here in Britain, mm-hmm. right? Every country in the world needs oil. They need it today. You know, regardless of, of your thoughts about climate change and fossil fuels, at the height of the COVID pandemic, when everything was shut down globally, the world only stopped oil. It was oil production or oil use, I should say. Oil use only dropped 20%. So when the world is on life support, we are still needing 80 million barrels of oil a day. Okay. So when the world is going, <laughs> you need even more oil. And because oil is traded and priced in dollars and every country needs it, it's like, it's literally like blood and you have to pay, you have to pay um, dollars to get blood for your country. And if you, um, if you don't have dollars, you got to get some. So these countries that are outside the dollar network have, have suffered. Um, and that's why dollar sanctions are, are so important. But it's also why the dollar has had so much value. That network is a global network, and it's the oil network. Um, it, current events today are trying to change that. So China is trying to, to upend that, as is Russia, as is Iran. The traditional U.S. enemies um, want to disconnect from that dollar network because that dollar network is so stra- strong, and oil is the way that they can do that. Yeah, and we may say, and this is one important thing, we may say it's popular to sit here and beat on the dollar and say it doesn't have value and that all is true the dollar's value declines over time it's just designed to do that that's the math behind it but the real value of the dollar is it's massive network Uh, that was created 50 to 70 years ago and it's a massive monetary network that basically covers the globe and while it has inefficiencies it's the best monetary network that we've had access to up until this point where cryptocurrencies have stepped in and they're starting to take over because they're just better. They're bigger, they're broader, and they're they're more efficient. Right. I mean, the value of a currency, if it's not global, it doesn't really have value. Okay. It's not, it's never, the only truly valuable currency is one that's a global currency. And the dollar is de facto that global currency. Otherwise, you're back to barter, right? You're like, well, I need, now I need to exchange this currency for that one. And, and you know, we, we do that because we've got liquidity in those marketplaces. But again, it all comes back to, I want to be able to exchange something right now for the value of that thing and not leave any money on the table. And honestly, the best way to do that is with a single currency. Now, it's probably not going to be Bitcoin, in my opinion. I just don't think that Bitcoin's built for that. I could be wrong. I didn't think we'd get this far with Bitcoin in terms of its adoption and its its alternative uses. Um, so I'm not ruling that out. But we're we're coming up on in my opinion, um, some headwinds to Bitcoin adoption. And eventually you start getting to a place where something else might overtake it, either some new technology, or if there really is a good government coordinated effort with central bank digital currencies, then then that would, would sort of crowd out Bitcoin adoption. And that's a good lead in. I think that will kind of get us to maybe you talking a little bit more in depth about Metcalf's law what that means with the, um, the amount of users and how that gives a network 
kind of a, a value that you can fundamentally assign to it. Um, also baked in that is, and we can talk a little bit more about it afterwards, but so you have these kind of layer one technologies, if you talk about a Bitcoin and then you have lightning on top of it, and then, you know, Ethereum's a layer one and they've kind of got some other layer twos and there's a lot of different new layer ones in the last year or two, which are all building layer twos. Do those layer twos and the additional nodes and additional users that are using on top of the layer one, original users and nodes, does that help carry a network further where, uh, as we are seeing right now with Facebook, it was the end all be all greatest network. And then all the copycats came right behind it. And everybody was, I'm the Facebook of whatever. And all they were really doing was just trying to get more users, which you can talk about the importance of that Metcalf's law. Uh, but then at, at some point, people get tired of that platform and they migrate to these new technologies or these new use cases that better suit their needs. And that's where networks sort of die off. So a little bit of a loaded question there. And if we need to step back and break it down, we can, but maybe you can explain some of that and, and how Metcalf's law helps you assign value by recognizing those things. Yeah. So let's talk about Bob Metcalf and what he did. Bob Metcalf was a co-inventor of Ethernet. All right. So the cable that hooks up to your computer, um, he helped invent that and was um, a founder of 3Com, which is still around today. And in the, in the process of selling his network, he um, came up with this proposition that the value that you're going to get out of your network is proportional to the number of users squared really the number of potential connections you can make and and he said he knew this intuitively because he was working with clients and customers that were had small networks like they connect three devices and then he knew that there was so much more efficiency if you connect more people to that network and and so to help his sales team um, sell more ethernet cards he came up with um, this graphic which was the um, the n squared principle and um, there's there's a lot of drama that's come out of this, right? Because uh, N squared, it goes out to infinity and he wasn't trying to claim that this goes on forever. But if you take the number of users times the number of users, your the value of your network is going to grow similarly to that to a point, okay? And there was a paper that came out in 2013, I think it was, uh, by Lisco and Briscoe and Tilly and then they wrote an article, and the title of the article was Metcalf's Law is Wrong, which is a really catchy title, okay, because everyone was using Metcalf's Law, and then they come out and say it's wrong. Um, and if you read their research and you know anything about statistics, um, the, the Atlisco, Briscoe, Tilly research is what's wrong. Um, they, they got it wrong in several regards, and they, they actually say in their paper, Metcalf's Law would work if there were some limits, um, some diminishing marginal returns in Metcalf's law. In other words, things don't <laughs> grow forever um, and, and it has to be scaled down at some point. And of course, Bob Metcalf said, well, I've always said that. And he's got that in his formula that it doesn't grow forever, that there's this adoption curve. You can see it with Facebook, right? They're sort mm -hmm. of maxing out users, okay? Then so the value starts to slow down and doesn't grow as quickly. Um, but then there's other things that happen with networks, like um, just think about driving, all right? Don't think about Bitcoin or all that stuff. Think about driving. There are days when it's it's good to drive, and then there's days when that road is really congested. And there's times a day when that road's are congested. If, if you can't get around on your network, 
then the network loses value. And and the you can have a large network, but if nobody can use it, it it loses value. If nobody uses it, it loses value. And and one point is that not sort of what we see with the traditional TCP/IP, the traditional internet, this base layer, nothing really on there, move text across, then you know okay, we've, we we kind of got that. We need something better. So email protocols come along and then then video, audio, all the other protocols. So the network, even though the inherent base layer lost quote unquote value, it being there and the ability to innovation to, to connect and create kind of kept that network intact and helped it grow in a lot of other ways and maybe had different networks off these other exterior protocols kind of carried their own value. Is it, is that sort of like the road analogy? Uh, yes. Every network has improvements on it, right? It, uh, I, I know this is why I like cars so much, right? You start with the Model T um, and you work your way up to automatic transition and you get safety features like safety belts and safety glass. So now you're not going to kill yourself when you wreck. Um, you get regulation, right? Speed limits, um, registering of vehicles, safety checks on vehicles. All of those things actually do help, but um, it's it's not an unlimited growth. And if you look at road networks, if you look at airline networks, if you look at rail networks, and I've looked at all this, um, you see Metcalf's law over and over again. So the larger the network, the more value it has. And it's that's not right. That's not earth shattering. What Metcalf's mm-hmm. law tells you is what's the relationship. It tells you that not that it grows, but it grows like users squared. Okay, if if Metcalf's law didn't work, we would see some other number in there besides users times users, and and we don't see that. Okay, so it's uh, it's it's definitely Metcalf's law at work on every network that I've looked at, and uh, I actually had to buy a book. Um, it's called Networks by Mark Newman. It is a seven hundred page Bible of networks because I, I kept getting a lot of flack about, well, Metcalf's law doesn't do this and you know, it doesn't cover that. And all that's nonsense, right? There's all these uh, deviations or, or I guess you could say improvements to Metcalf's law that cover all these little exceptions, right? Like what if, what if this node gets connected? What about lightning network? And what if more people come in? Is it the whales? Is it the small users? All that stuff that it can get really, really complicated. And you can have multiple factors that affect network value, but the truth is the only one that really matters is size. Size dominates everything, right? If you have a a small network, I want you to imagine you live in a world where you can only go to three places. There's three towns and that's it. That's your entire universe. That network's horrible, okay? Even if it's transited a lot, um, because there's just not a lot of interaction or change or there's zero growth. If you have a large network, like the United States, even if every road isn't transacted on all the time, the fact that you can get there when you want to, that has incredible value. And to the point on the networks book by Mark Newman, uh, kind of hit home with me 20 years ago when I was doing computer science, I spent a lot of time playing war games and you know reading up on internet networks and intranetworks and all that kind of stuff and looking at schematics and a lot of stuff I didn't fully understand some of it I did uh, at the time, but, you know, you kind of go through a couple of years of doing that and, and walk away from it. Um, and, and then it shows up 15, 20 years later. Uh, it was very helpful because it 
gave me a lot of insight into, even if I don't fully understand all these things related to Bitcoin or other cryptocurrencies, I do understand how networks work and, and how information needs to flow across them to be useful. And I'm seeing this thing, but now it, it's communicating value. It's not just sending text or video or audio. And to me, that's game changer, regardless of, you know, what coin wins or, you know, I kind of think we'll see basically a rebirth of 70s, 80s equities style with these different protocols and, and projects. But who knows? I mean, that's all magic eight ball stuff. Um, one point that that you made about Metcalf's law and there were a few that said, hey, this doesn't work because it doesn't show a limitation, the point that it scales down. Is that possibly why traditional economists have ignored this whole powerful uh, math equation and, and powerful value insight, giving fundamental value to these social networks of users that you really can't, you can't look at their balance sheet and, and say, this is a great investment because it's just burn. It's just large amounts of burn, but Facebook, Uber, Amazon, all these networks have immense value, but not in traditional sense. And it seems like you've figured out what the math problem that, that helps you make those valuations, but Wall Street economists, for whatever reason, seem to have ignored, ignored it. Yeah, we're really early into Metcalf's law, right? The first peer-reviewed published paper was 2015. There was another one um, shortly after that, and then mine was in 2018, I think, okay? So we have, there's three published papers that quantitatively um, validate Metcalf's law, okay? That's tiny, and none of them were in major, major journals, okay? So if you think about, uh, like, um, Harry Markowitz uh, developed modern portfolio theory, right? This formula about how much to buy in each stock to get the best risk return adjusted portfolio. That was, I believe, his, Matt, his PhD thesis and it was 1956. Um, we are four years beyond that in terms of Metcalf's law. No, no, seven years, okay? So it's 1962, 1963. How many asset managers were using Harry Markowitz portfolio optimization in 1963. None, because hardly any of them had the computing power to do it. Um, it was a theoretical thing that you would read about in papers. It didn't come along until the 80s. We are, we are 10 to 20 years away from Metcalf's law, maybe probably closer to 10, from Metcalf's law being a little bit more mainstream in asset management. Now, I'm writing as much as I can and as fast as I can, and I have two or three books that I'd like to get published sometime. And I intend on sending, I, you know, I'm going to write one book that's strictly for uh, as a textbook, right? For, for asset managers and finance professors. And I'm probably going to give away that, that book to several finance professors at universities so they can get their head in the game. Um, because right now they're just, they're just not aware of it. And, and part of the reason that there's these limitations is, so Metcalf said, hey, yeah, there's this diminishing marginal returns that exists in everything, but he never defined it, right? He conceptualized it, but he never said, well, here's what it is. And he never bothered. He's not an economist. He's a computer guy, right? He's not a finance guy. Um, I've put lots of work into that. And the truth is I've kept it secret because it's, it's Colonel Sanders' recipe. Mm -hmm. I'm not, you know, Colonel Sanders didn't go around and tell everyone what his 11 herbs and spices were. He just said, would you want to buy some chicken? So I'm going to sell chicken, but I'm definitely not going to give away my secret recipe. And that's a challenge in today's modern business model is if you came up with a groundbreaking zero to one technology like Bill talks about, you had 
10 years before your first competitor could really start to compete with you. Maybe you had a 20 year, 30 year business cycle. And that shows up in the, in the death of companies, the death rate of companies speeding up in the S and P because now post 2005 digital economy, new business model, like you come up with a groundbreaking technology and start talking about it and delivering it. Well, in eight months, some other competitor has hired a handful of developers, put them in a room and said, I want this. And then they backwards engineer everything. And, and now all of a sudden you may not even win the race and you were first. And, I, and some people criticize my, my work because they can't back into it. And I, that's because I've left some things out. Somebody's not going to recreate my true value model because that's proprietary. Right. And, and it's like, well, then what good is it? You know, we just have to trust him. Well, for the moment, yeah, that's probably right. I'm I'm fine with that. Well, that's how you make a living. Like that's that's business 101. Yeah, it's, it's, it's just a matter of getting the intellectual property protection in place mm. and, and securing it the right way before it can get released. And, and eventually I hope everybody does catch on to it.